Uh, the passage that we're going to be hearing from this morning can be found in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there with me. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, uh, there should be one located underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own on a consistent basis, then um, consider that a gift from us to you. And we pray that it is a light unto your feet. Uh, once again, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. Well, once you arrive there and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 3. Verses 11 through 24 says this. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we will receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see your faces. Uh, if you guys were at the Orphan Care Banquet, you probably didn't get much sleep. So just hang in there. All right. I'm struggling with you. Um, but hey, it's good to see everyone, and like Ty was saying, we are in, still in, kind of right in the middle of a series in 1 John, uh, talking about uh, us as believers being anchored uh, in Christ and being assured that we have faith in Him. Uh, and, and this is a, uh, a priceless thing that we have to have assurance in Christ. And, and as we talked about before, 1 John is a unique book in the sense that it really uh, in a very black and white kind of way, dissects our hearts and, and reveals to us um, what it means to be assured and what it means to, to not be assured that you're in Christ, right? Uh, it, it's a very clear picture of, of, of someone who walks with Christ and knows him and, and someone who, who doesn't. And, and so this book does a gracious thing at kind of just teaching us uh, what that means and helping us to pursue uh, faith in Christ and assurance in him. And so that's what we want to do today. Uh, we're talking about loving one another again. Uh, so this is kind of like a, kind of part two uh, of a sermon we did not too long ago, talking about being anchored in love. And so we're going to be discussing some of the same topics, but from kind of a different view. And so one thing I want to mention before we get into it and pray is um, I want to ask the question, you know, how do we have confidence that we are God's children? Right, that's, a, that's a good question to ask. And I think if we base that question, the answer to that question, if we base it on our performance, inevitably we're going to fall into two different categories. So if we say, 
hey, I, I feel confident I'm God's child because I can do X, Y, Z, or, or because of your performance in your religion. Uh, what's gonna happen is you'll fall into two camps. Either A, uh, you'll be prideful and, and you'll think that you're awesome, right? You, you think that you are a Christian and good standing with God because of what you have done, right? And, and we know that this is, this is not good doctrine, right? This is not uh, a good thing to believe because we are uh, inevitably just failures for the most part in life and, and godliness and, and we need God's grace and his mercy. So we'll be prideful and have a false confidence that we are in Christ if we base it on our performance. And the other thing that may happen if you base it on your performance, and maybe you're more realistic, is that you will be depressed, right? You will be in despair because you are not able to, to uh, add up to the glory of God, if you will, right? You're not able to uh, perform your way into perfect obedience. It's just not possible. You're sinful. You're messed up. You're sick with sin to some degree, and by God's grace, slowly but surely, that sickness is leaving us and will one day be gone forever. But right now, it is not. And therefore, you will despair and you will suffer from condemnation. And so, today, we're going to talk about being anchored in this assurance, but particularly in the way that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to talk about how we do that. And if we do that well, how that gives us assurance that we are in Jesus. And so... Um, Verse 11 starts off with the commandment once again, right, that we are to love uh, one another. Um, and, and so a few questions I want to answer through this sermon are, why does John so often address this commandment? Because he said it over and over again since we started this book, and he'll continue to mention it on even into chapter 5. So why does he keep repeating this commandment, and what does this have to do with our confidence that we are God's children? That's what I hope to answer today. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind with me, let's, let's, let's bow our heads and pray together and ask for God's help this morning. Father, we uh, are, are desperate, <laughs> we're, we're in, in great need for you. This morning, we want to thank you for being God of the universe. We want to thank you for having control over our entire lives. We want to thank you for being good to us and loving us. We want to thank you that you did not leave us where we were, broken in sin, dead in our sin, but by your grace, God, you came and you gave us life. You spoke words of peace and grace and kindness when we should have only had words of death and condemnation and judgment. You are a good God. You are so good to us. And this morning, God, our plea is that you would help us. We want to be people that, that um, are examples of your love for us as we love one another. We want to exemplify that, God. We want to love one another well. And God, we want to be so confident in who we are in you and what you've done for us. Because God, we know that is true peace, that is true joy. And so by your grace, would you open our eyes to your word this morning? Would you give us supernatural Holy Spirit power to see your words and to believe them with all of our hearts? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so there's just three uh, things I want to walk through. There's kind of three sections. This uh, section of verses, verse 11 through 24, it should be at least three sermons, okay? It's not even fair to have this text for one sermon. Uh, so there's be a lot of things I just probably won't mention through the text just for the sake of time uh, because we don't have it. Uh, but in general, uh, there's three major things I want to point out that we can know that we abide in Christ because of okay, uh, the, the first one is this we know that we abide in Christ because we love our brothers and sisters. 
We love our brothers and sisters. And so uh, what I want to do really quick is I just want to read verses 11 uh, through uh, 15. So I want to cover that really fast together. Uh, And here's what it says. It says, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so how do we know that we have eternal life abiding in us, that we love our brothers and sisters? Now, there is a very specific kind of love that John is talking about, okay? Uh, And what he's talking about is love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this doesn't imply that we don't love all people, right? We love those inside and outside of the faith. Our heart should be broken for those who don't know Christ. Uh, But this particular text is talking about how we love people inside the church and around the world who believe in Christ. And, and if you could probably attest to this, but sometimes it seems like it's the hardest, right, to love people inside the church, right? Because there's, there's this, uh, uh, I don't know, this is kind of tough thing with it where we're all sinful, but we all expect a lot more from other people than we should, right? It's kind of like marriage. Uh, and, and so it's tough. We get together from all different walks of life, uh, but we're, we're unified around one thing, and that's Christ. Uh, and that could be a tough love sometimes, but this is the love in which he is talking about. Um, and that, that's why Paul will say things like in, in Galatians 6.10, right? He says that um, you should be doing this for people, especially for those of the household of God, right? There's a uniqueness in the way in which the church of Christ loves each other that displays the gospel to the world. And that's the kind of love that we are talking about being anchored in this morning. Uh, so when we look at these verses, what, what is John's plea to us? His plea is don't be like Cain. This is the only like direct Old Testament reference from this book. And he says, don't be like Cain who killed his brother. Now, you guys, I'm sure have read that story. If you've been at church for any amount of time, maybe you heard it in Sunday school. But we're going to read it together uh, just because he referenced it. And we, we want to kind of look at what happens here uh, with Cain. So Genesis chapter 4, right there in the beginning of your Bible. Uh, We're going to start in verse 1. If I can find it. I know it's here somewhere. There we go. Okay, here's what it says. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded, uh, regard for Abel, sorry, he had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must rule over it. So God's giving Cain a warning what's going on in his spirit right now about this anger and this malice that he has towards his brother Abel. And here's what happens. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened uh, its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. And so this is the first murder, not the first sin, right? We see Adam and Eve commit the first sin, but this is the first murder that takes place recorded on the earth. And so what you see here is Cain and Abel, they both bring these offerings to God to, to worship him and, and show their, their love for him. And it says that God liked Abel's. And there's kind of some metaphor here with the sheep and everything, and I don't have time to get into that but with, with Christ. But uh, the, the, the point is that Abel had a righteous offering, I'm guessing from a pure heart that loved God, and he brought it and God accepted it and was pleased by it. And then Cain brought his from the ground, but there was something off about Cain's. God did not have regard for it. It was not brought from uh, the right heart, if you will, right? It was an unrighteous offering. And so what happens is uh, God's warning Cain, like, hey, this anger, that your face is falling, you're angry, you're upset. Why is this going on in your heart? You need to watch out for this because if you let this take you over and you don't rule over it, it's going to kill you, right? And, and what happens is, is Cain rises up against his brother in the field. He murders him in cold blood, right? And then God comes to him and says, what are you doing, right? He asks him, uh, where's your brother? And Cain's response is, am I my brother's keeper? And we know the answer is yes, right? God created us to love, to keep one another, to cherish one another, and, and to, to fight for one another. But rather, uh, doing that, Cain did the opposite. And so what, he, what John is pointing out here is, don't be Cain. And you might think, well, I'm not gonna go out and murder someone because, you know, uh, of a stupid reason like that. It doesn't make any sense, right? And you may think that. But John does a very good job at kind of picking this apart. Um, so just, just a few things here in reference. Uh, Court talked about last week about, uh, because basically right before this in, in uh, John chapter three, talks about being of God and being of the evil one, right? So you got those who are, are born again and are of God and those who are of their father, the devil, right? We were quoting the Pharisees last week and talking about what that means, um, and so uh, Cain envied Abel's favor with God and he murdered him for it. And so I would say this, because I think this is a warning here in John. Those of the world, which is everyone that's not of God, but of the devil, right? Everyone who does not believe in God, those of the world hate God. It is natural for the world, which is represented by Cain here, uh, to hate you because they hate the Father, right? So he says... Listen, look at Cain, this example represented by the world, and he says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. That's a good word for us right now, I think especially culturally, right, because we've gone through a shock uh, the past several decades. But don't be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised when you're hated like Abel was hated and killed. Don't be surprised when you are marginalized by society. Don't be surprised when your country starts going against everything that you believe, right? Don't, don't be surprised when your family hates you for believing in Christ. I go on and on, right? But the Bible says, John is saying, don't think that's weird, right? Or as Peter would say, don't count it strange, okay? Don't be surprised when that happens. Why? Because it's been from the beginning, right? The devil hates you. He hates you. He hates God. He hates everything that God stands for, and he would love nothing better than to keep us from God. And so that's why we have this struggle in the world. So, so don't be surprised when that happens. It should be expected from us. But how can we be sure that we are not like Cain? Okay, how can we be sure that we are not angry and that we hate our brothers? How can we answer the question, do we really love our brothers like we're supposed to? Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to answer that um, today. 
So one way that we know that we have passed from death to life, that we are no longer spiritually dead, but have eternal life abiding in us and we are in Christ, is that we have a genuine love for our brothers and sisters. And so if you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you are in Christ. Death no longer reigns in you anymore. And so I want to make this caveat too. John is not saying that we can earn our passage to this eternal life. You know what I mean? We talked about this at the beginning, but um, so he's not saying, well, that if you just do a better job at loving people, right? If you just, uh, you know, stop cursing at people and, you know, give them better gifts for Christmas or something like that, then what's gonna happen is then, then God's gonna approve of you, right? Like it doesn't work that way. He's not saying that you can just earn your passage there. More so, what John is saying is that when you see the fruit of a genuine love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, then there's gotta be something that's there at the root, right? When you see the fruit, it's resemblance of what's at the root. And so what's naturally overflowing from your heart is a well of hatred for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You can rest assured, you are probably not in Christ. He's not holding a punch here, okay? If you do not love, you do not have God's love abiding in you. But if love for the people of God is flowing out of you, this is a big deal. This is proof that we have met Christ and been with him and we know him. That's what he's saying. So those who hate their brothers still remain in spiritual death. And then John takes it a step further just to clarify what he means by don't be like Cain, right? And he's gonna start to quote Jesus here, really. But he says basically those who hate their brothers are murderers. And so if you hate your brother, you abide in death and you are a murderer, right? And this is reflecting Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in uh, Matthew chapter five, verses 21 and 22, he talks about this. He says, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. But I say to you that uh, even if you're angry, you're still liable to judgment, right? Into hellfire. So what he's saying is that if you're angry, if you get angry in your heart and anger is a part of you, that you are a murderer, right? It's, just, it's the same thing. Jesus takes it a step further to say it's all about the heart, right? God's not only interested in your actions, but he's also interested in your motives. And he not only judges your actions, but he judges our motives. And so if we have hatred in our hearts for our brothers, we are murderers and the truth is not in us. That's where he leaves us. Now, what I want to do in the next couple of points here is I want to start to, I want to look at what does that mean to love? Like you can say, okay, love is so vague, right? Uh, if, if we're not careful, sometimes we can define love because we watched a 90s sitcom and we saw some very cool things, right? Or maybe we watch uh, some chick flicks like The Notebook or Crazy Stupid Love and we felt like, that's what love is. This all makes sense now, right? And then you try to apply that and it usually doesn't work, okay? There's a lot of definitions of love we may have, but I wanna look at how John defines love and what he's pointing to as love. And this will really help us kind of flesh that out, I think, what it means to love. So, um, point number two is we know that we abide in Christ because we love in action. We love in action. So we don't love just in our words, but we love in action. Um, and let's look at 1 John verses 16 uh, through 18. It says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's a good word from John right there. Um, so let's look at this. I, I want to read from uh, Daniel Aiken. He, he did some commentary on First John. He says this. He says, 
the Bible says that if you want to see love, look at the cross. The Bible says that if you want to show love, look at the cross. The Bible says that if you want to know love, look at the cross. The Bible says that if you want to live love, look at the cross. He is repetitive on purpose. If you want to know love, if you want to live it, if you want to show it, if you want to uh, experience it, look at the cross. What do we mean by that, right? Um, It says that just as Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for one another, right? So think about the gospel. Most of you have probably heard clear definitions of the gospel. Maybe you haven't. But the gospel is simply that God loved us when we didn't deserve it, right? We are sinful. We, we are not only sinful by nature, but we choose it every single day. We, by nature, are haters of God. We're murderers. We're evil. We are undeserving of any love, of any affection. Rather, we are deserving of hell. And this is a clear teaching throughout all the Bible, right? And we will get that punishment if we are not in Christ, right? But the story is that God, in infinite mercy, humbled himself, became an infant, became human. What a shame that is, right? But he, he became uh, one of us, right? He, he, he became uh, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he lived his life perfectly. He has always been and will always be sinless, worthy of all praise and affection. And this God, right, he lived the life that you could never live but were supposed to, and he died in your place, taking on your sin on his shoulders on the cross, right? He silently walked to the most brutal death that's ever happened in human history. Not just because of the physical torture, but he was absorbing the wrath of God that was aimed at you. As Jonathan Edwards said in his famous uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, God has a bloodthirsty arrow aimed at your heart, right? And that little string that's holding it back is Jesus Christ, deserving of the wrath of God. And Jesus willingly, though he could have stopped at any time, chose to love you. As John Piper said, every step towards Calvary was a step of love, pure affection for his bride, who once again was unworthy, right? And he lays down his life, victorious over death, and now he gives you eternal life in him. Not only does he give you that, but you inherit everything that is his. It says the whole world will be ours. I don't know what that looks like, but it's going to be ours, right? So we shouldn't be stingy because we're going to get everything. It's cool. But that love, that display of Christ laying down his life is the very foundation of the love that we have for one another. Your love for people is meant to be a reflection of the love of God. Okay? It's not supposed to be something that we have just because we're good and super loving, but it's a reflection of the love of God, which makes marriage more deep, right? It makes our love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ deeper than it would be otherwise, right? It's that love of God and he laid down his life. That's why Jesus also said in John 15, 13 that the the greatest love is that someone would lay down his life for his friends, right? It's a sacrificial laying down. Now let's talk about practically. What does this look like for us, okay? Okay, we know it's supposed to represent Christ. We're obviously not Christ and we're Hopefully not going to die on a cross. Uh, But what does that look like? How how do we do that every day? I got two main things from the text that I think are important. Uh, The first thing is practical action. Practical action, okay? Talk is cheap. You ever heard that? Talk is cheap. It's like 
Um, we have this like eternal battle in my house, right? Where I, I just don't, I, I don't even know why it happens, okay? But I just like don't pick up after myself sometimes. And it's just like natural. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get back to that in just a second. And then it's like two days later and then Chelsea has to pick it up. And then she's like, why did I have to do that, right? It's like this constant battle. Uh, and and, and um, with that, it's like I could talk all day long, right? I could say, I'm gonna do that, okay? Trust me. But she's to the point now where she's like, listen, don't tell me you're gonna do it, Okay. Just do it. When you do it, then I'll know you're going to do it, and that's perfect, right? That's how it should work. And it's the same way with love. Like, like we can't just talk about loving people, talk about, oh, how much we care for people, how much we want to, you know, help our brothers and sisters and do all this, and then someone asks you to move, right? It's like, oh, man, I am so busy on Saturday. I am sorry, right? I got so many things to do, like watch the game and stuff, right? It's just so difficult. And so practical love, God's love does not exist in merely words and talk, but in deeds and truth. Jesus didn't, just didn't say, oh, I love you so much. I hope you find me, right? No, he came to seek and save the lost. There's action. Love moves. It doesn't stay still. Talk is empty. So don't just blabber about how much you love people. Do something. Help someone pay a bill. Meet a need. Make someone food. Uh, bear one another's burdens when a brother or sister falls into sin or is suffering, right? Step out in love. See needs in the world, spiritual needs, physical needs, and meet those needs. This is true love. Encourage your brothers and sisters in the faith and to fight for Jesus Christ and joy in him, right? This is true love. It is practical. Now, we don't have to get overly practical. It obviously stems from a spiritual thing, but, but love, love moves. Love is practical action. It doesn't just exist in talk. It is real, it is tangible, it is felt. And this is what made the church so radically unique, the early church, right? I mean, they literally got, they were selling like some property they had and different stuff and they just put it all in a pot, right? It's like a, it's like a you know, you know, most spouses will share a bank account, right? You just kind of put it all in the bank account and then just kind of distribute the funds as necessary. Uh, Ezra was confused about this. My son, he asked me the other day because Chelsea called me and she's on speakerphone. And she said, hey, can I get a cup of coffee here or whatever? I was like, sure, you can do that, that's fine, whatever. And Ezra was so confused, he was puzzled back there. And he's like, why did she ask you for permission? I was like, well, we share money, buddy, you know, so we just kind of, we, we got to make sure we're cool with how we spend it, right? But uh, this is what the early church, it made them unique, right? It was like they were, they were just selling their possessions, they were giving it to anyone who had need. And this wasn't just to like anyone, this was like the, the brothers and sisters in Christ. They were doing this with one another. And I'm not saying we have to have a joint church bank account where we all just put our money together and figure out mortgages and stuff. But what I am saying is that there should be an element of this in our lives, right? It's just that we're willing to, to do something, which leads me to the next point and ties in is we don't only love in practical action, but we love in sacrificial action. The nature of Jesus' love was not apathetic, right? The nature of Jesus' love was passionate. It was sacrificial. It cost him his life. And in many cases, it costs us our lives too. Loving other people is not convenient. Convince yourself of this. Loving other people is not convenient. It's not easy. It's hard. It's tough work. It's sacrifice. For most of us, and I'll include myself in this, we only go far enough in helping people to where it's just not uncomfortable, right? That's as far as we're willing to go. It's okay, I'm willing to do this, this, and this because I like it, it's cool. But as soon as I hit that, you know, pain threshold where this is now uncomfortable for me and inconvenient, I don't want to do it anymore. Our pain tolerance is weak many times when it comes to loving people and to serving people and to sacrificing, right? 
And man, do we have excuses and strategies for not going further, right? We have excuses and strategies for not doing what God has called us to do. And I just want to caveat, I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I included myself in that purposefully because I'm just very convicted. I felt like I was the worst guy to preach this sermon, right? Just going through like, man, I just, I'm so comfortable, right? It's so easy to be comfortable. It's so hard not to be comfortable. But when we turn our eyes from need, that is not love. It's not love. When we think we can only ever give what is extra and what never, and, and not give what is costly, that is not love. When we prioritize our earthly safety, comfort, and plans over Christ's call to love one another, that is not love. It's that call in Hebrews, right? Where he says, Jesus suffered outside the camp. And he's calling us to come out and to suffer with him, right? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me, die every single day to yourself. Love is death in the sense that it is death to yourself. Love pushes us beyond our everyday wants and desires and hopes and dreams. Can you imagine if Jesus considered his safety, right, uh, over uh, rescuing us? It's not a safe thing to die on a cross, right? I know, obviously, Jesus is always safe. It's kind of a skewed analogy, but you know what I mean, right? If we consider our safety and our wants and our desires over loving and what we've been called to do, this great commandment to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, then really, guys, we're robbing ourselves of joy. You know, it's true. When you're lazy and selfish, <laughs> life sucks. You're miserable. You're always anxious. No matter how much money you keep, you're always anxious about losing it, right? And you're always at risk for losing it because you can't control it. There's so many things that we can't control. We feel so, we're so comfortable with, right? So my point is, I don't want to get too far down this, but my point is that love is practical. It's sacrificial. It does hurt initially, but it is rewarding, right? And we know that we abide in Christ when our love takes action, okay? And once again, this isn't earning. He's not implying you earn it by actions, so I don't want you to go out of here and say, man, I gotta go volunteer or something or I'm just not saved, okay? Uh, there, there should be, uh, by God's grace, a motivation because we love to do these things. But when there's not, we still faithfully obey because it's what we're called to do and it represents the love of Christ. And it is in this heart that we have confidence that we are in him. We have confidence. The third thing... Uh, the third way that we know we abide is this. We know that we abide in Christ because we walk in his love. We walk in his love. Now, these are all kind of tied together a little bit here, but let's look at verse 19 uh, to 24. Now, there's a lot in this. And I wish I had more time to do a separate sermon on this, but I don't, so we're gonna get it done in six minutes, okay? Here's what it says. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. I love that. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Okay, 
So this is some great practical application of what it means to abide in God's love. I, I, I pointed out about four different things. And I'll just kind of roll through them fast. They're, they're, a lot of them are self-explanatory, but uh, here's what they are. Uh, so what does it mean to walk in God's love, to walk with God? What do we mean when we say that? It sounds very Christian, right? What, what does it mean that we do that? From the text, here's a few observations. One is that we are living in and believing in God's word about who we are in him. We are living in, believing in, who God says we are in his word, okay? And, and so what happens here is it says that um, this is how we can assure ourselves. Guys, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. I love that because listen to this, okay? God knows everything. He knows your motives. He knows your hearts. He, he knows your thoughts. He knows your sin way more intimately than you know your sin. God knows everything everything. And when our hearts condemn us as believers, when we have trouble believing Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we feel condemned, when we feel unworthy of Christ, when we feel like we are not in him, God is greater than our hearts. And by the way, he knows everything. So it doesn't say God is greater than our hearts, and, uh, but if he knew how we really were, then he would hate us, right? That's, that's not what it says. God knows everything. And still, still chose to die for us and still chooses to love us. So this is how we reassure our hearts that did God loved us when we were at our worst. And if that's right now, God still loves you at your worst, okay? He does. It's true, and it's in his word. And we walk in this and believe this, it's good. We ha God gave us a conscience, right? We, we are convicted. We have a conscience. It's not seared, hopefully. We have a conscience. We understand when we do wrong. We feel conviction. We repent, Right? And walking in that repentance and believing in God gives us confidence. But I want to say this. Our conscience is a good guide, but it's not a good judge. It's a good guide, but it's not a good judge. Our conscience does guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us to sin and we repent, but it's not the final word. The final word is who Christ said you are. The final word is what God speaks over us and sings over us, is that we are in him, right? righteous we are the righteousness of Christ second thing is that we have confidence before God because we walk in obedience and repentance and prayer okay so this line uh, basically talks about um, that we, we walk in an obedience and, and whenever we ask for God we have confidence whatever we ask we get why because we obey his commandments and we do what pleases him now, I want to be careful with this wording. I want to bring in Spurgeon to help define this a little bit, okay, in just a second. But uh, the point is that the Christian life, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but we do walk in obedience. We have obedience. Yes, it's not a perfect obedience. It never will be until one day in glory, until you are changed. But we do obey, and there are things we do that, that pleases God. And so uh, it's kind of like Court talked about last week, right? It's this idea of, uh, John says, practicing sin Verse. uh just falling into sin, right? So she said this last week, if you say that without sin, you're a liar. So if you say I've never sinned, I'm perfect, I, I perfectly obey, then you're just a liar. But if you make a practice of sinning, then you're not in Christ and you're condemned to death, right? What does that mean? That simply means that, that our, our theme in the Christian life is a desire to obey, a want to obey, right? And Every once in a while, just getting it right and just obeying and having a good heart. And then as soon as we think, oh, I got it right, then we screwed up, right? Then, then we messed up because we started to bring pride into that and we started to think about us. Um, so there's this obedience. 
And because of this obedience and this uh, being pleasing to God, especially because of what Christ has done, right? We have confidence in prayer. We just ask him. We ask him. And Spurgeon says this on it, uh, commenting on the this, this same idea. Um, it was in a, a, a talk he gave on the conditions of power in prayer. And here's what he says. He says, he who has a clear conscience comes to God with confidence. And that confidence of faith ensures to him the answer of his prayer. Childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes, us, uh, it makes a man pray for great things, which he would never have asked for if he had not learned this confidence, and makes him pray for little things, which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt towards God the confidence of children. Now, I didn't tell you this quote was super long because you probably wouldn't pay attention, but we're almost done now, okay? Um, he says this. He says, the man of obedience is the man whom God will hear because his obedient heart leads him to pray humbly and with submission, for he feels it to be his highest desire that the Lord's will should be done. So Spurgeon is clear here, I don't know if you caught it, to mention that God doesn't answer our prayer because we're so awesome. It's not like this like piggy bank, right? Like if you just keep obeying enough, then God's gonna give you whatever you want, right? Like if you just uh, do enough Hail Marys, then he's, he's gonna give you a new car or something. It doesn't work that way. But what, what he's pointing out is that those who walk in obedience and have the theme of obedience and are in Christ, they have confidence when they pray. Why? Because they're not just asking for selfish things most of the time, right? They're praying by the will of God for the will of God because they desire God above all other things. And so it is in this confidence that we have in prayer that we are also assured that we are in him. Two more things here in closing. The next thing is that we have a living relationship with God. It says that we believe upon the name of Jesus and that we uh, uh, have the Holy Spirit abiding in us, right? So uh, another thing is, do, do you know God? Do you walk with God? Do you talk with him? Do you only pray at Christmas and Easter or, or is there a genuine relationship with God? It would be a disservice if I were to tell you that just because you prayed a prayer one time, right, and, and you, you said, okay, I guess I don't want to go to hell, I'll go to heaven, thanks, right? It would be a disservice to say, okay, I think you're a believer because you just did that, right? What's proof that we are in God? It's that we walk with God, we have a relationship with him. And then lastly, once again, kind of repetitive, is that we, we love one another as another evidence, right? We know we're in him and that we pass from death to life because we love one another. So, in conclusion, we ask the question, why does John keep addressing this commandment so much to love one another? And we also ask the question, um, what does this have to do with our confidence if we are God's children? I hope we answer that in summary. When we are born again and we have Christ abiding in us, we experience the love of God that most certainly results in the fruit of loving others. Therefore, if we, are true, if we truly love others, we are truly in Christ. And so my invitation for you this morning is that you would examine your heart, that you would ask God to examine your heart, and that we would repent together and ask God to help us be a loving people, to help us be a loving people who love our brothers and sisters in Christ, who love the world, who are willing to push, pack, push past right, our discomfort and make a sacrifice, do something for someone, right? Uh, and so this is a call to do that, right? But more importantly, this is a call to believe in Christ. It's a call to examine, yes, the fruit of your life, and, and then to examine, are, are you in Christ, right? That's what we're doing this whole series for. Are you in Christ? Do you have him? 
our, our society is so muddled with this, right? It's just getting more and more confusing what it means to be a Christian in our culture. Um, it's important we define that, that we're clear about that. So my invitation is come to, come to Christ. That love that motivates our love, he offers it to us. It's free. He's offering it to us right now through his word. And we can come and we can believe in him and we can have love everlasting, life everlasting. And it's in Christ. And so that's my invitation to you. Let's just pray together and just ask God to do this uh, with us. If you wouldn't mind bowing your heads with me here. Father, we are um, so happy to have your word. We're so happy to talk about it this morning and, and to just kind of pray through these things. And God, my, my simple request is that you would help us to be anchored in you. God, to give us that blessed assurance that we are yours forever. And God, help us to love. God, when we look at your love, our response is we want to love like that. But God, it's so hard for us. It's so hard for us. And so we ask that you would help us to love. You would chip away at our selfishness, our desire to be numb rather than to sacrifice and walk in practical, God-honoring, glorious love. God, help us to get a taste for the better things. You are better. Your love is better. Choosing to love others is better. And God, it is in this, when we see this fruit, by your grace, though it may be very small fruit, when we see this, we are reminded, God, we're in you. Give us that childlike faith and joy that we are your children. Help us to be strong to be confident because you are our confidence. So God, it's in your name we pray and we ask these things believing that you will help us because you care for your children. Amen.